Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Smart Cities Chronicles podcast, your podcast for everything Smart Cities action, investment and outcomes. My name is Adam Beck, your host of the Chronicles. For those that know me, of course, my day job, Executive Director at the Smart Cities Council. Uh, Episode 52 today, and this is the third in a series that we've been running. Um, Our series is, uh, is taking us taking us somewhat back into the archives a little bit um, to where it all began, uh, where I've been interviewing uh, those sort of policymakers and practitioners that have uh, been around this sort of smart and digital space for quite some time, almost before it became popular. Uh, And um, joining me today, uh, looking forward to this conversation, uh, I am joined by uh, Marcus Foth from the Queensland University of Technology, Professor Marcus Foth. Uh, Marcus, thanks so much for joining us today. Adam, thank you so much for having me. No, that's a pleasure. Um, Marcus, I always begin by asking our guests to give a little introduction, a little bio of themselves, who they are and what they do. What can you tell us about yourself? Sure. I'm, uh, as you said, a professor at QUT. I uh, work in the QUT Design Lab. I um, had a research group that is looking at people, place and technology as we like to refer to it. So it's a quite a broad remit around um, the, the social sciences, the technical sciences and the spatial sciences, if you like. So it's a quite a, a transdisciplinary research group and our main focus is on understanding how um, people um, communicate, interact, transact in cities and what's the role of both place and um, technology. I uh, I was stumbling a little bit there on the introduction, Marcus, because I had in front of me your LinkedIn bio, um, and I, w- I had to keep scrolling up to the top because your uh, your list of <laughs> positions, roles, and titles at QUT over your thirteen years is is quite extensive. Um, and uh, what actually <laughs> what actually caught my eye was. Um, one of the roles there, which is Director of Urban Informatics Research Lab, starting back April 2006. So, so this is perfect for this sort of series that we're doing around sort of where it all began, you know, reflecting on the origins of the smart cities movement. So, so let's, yeah, definitely. let's go back to where it began. Let's, um, let's talk about urban informatics. Um, we've got, uh, we've got listeners uh, scattered all over the world. Um, so can you take me back to, um, uh, urban informatics, uh, the idea, um, the, the role, your work, where did it kind of all begin? What was going on in 2006 that led to sort of you becoming the director of that thing? Sure. So, um, it, it actually goes back a, a bit further, further, even I've, I've been here around 18, 19 years. I joined QUT in 2001. As a, as a very humble master's um, student back then. And um, yeah, I think probably another two years or so until I get my gold wristwatch for the you know, loyalty of 20 years. <laughs> smartwatch, of course. I don't know what they're doing. Oh, of course it will be a, a smartwatch. I, I hope it will be. Um, so in, um, in 2001, I joined QUT. I, uh, I did my, my undergrad in Germany. I did a um, computer science degree in the 90s. And around that time, um, in fact, the, um, the program that I studied in the Black Forest, it was always kind of referred to as a bit of a learning gap because it was a beautiful um, scenery and surroundings, but it was quite remote. 
Um, if, if you can think of a place in Germany that is remote, but you still have to drive about an hour to get to the um, closest cinema or the closest McDonald's. Um, so the, the students that were there in that place, they were um, quite focused as we would kind of, you know, love to think of ourselves, but at the same time, quite innovative as well. So the, um, the origin of, um, at the time, information systems came from that tiny little place, Fort Wagen in the Black Forest, and that was in the, in the 70s. And similarly, in the um, late 80s and, and early um, 90s, they invented this new degree program called Media Informatics. And so it was around the time that the internet wasn't actually really commercially as, as, as popular and attractive and viable. Um, and so the first graduates, they were actually working on um, multimedia kiosks and they're working on CD-ROMs and um, the kinds of um, applications on there using Director and, and Lingo and those kinds of very early applications of multimedia. So I entered this at a, at a very early um, stage, I suppose. The internet then, um, became more and more popular in the early 2000s and I became more and more interested in the social applications and so when I um, did my study abroad program first at Griffith and then I joined QUT I um, increasingly um, combined my interest in the in the technology with an interest in people and so um, fast forward to finishing my PhD in uh, 2005 2006 I added this third uh, interest around place and it really came about um, at a time when most people were thinking about uh, telework and e-commerce and distant education and everything about, I think even some people refer to it as the, the death of distance. So it was about cyberspace um, that would bring about the global village through the information superhighway. So those were the kinds of you know terms and the narrative at that time. And um, throughout my PhD, I thought I'm going to do something that might be a bit risk, um, risque and a bit, bit um, different, which is to actually understand the impact of the internet on place. So first studies were um, buildings and master plan communities and community networks. So those communities online that were coming together, not because of interest-based relationships and ties, but because of place-based relationships and ties. And so that kind of turned out to be quite a winner because it made way for um, quite a um, diverse and, and uh, since then um, growing research um, domain that is looking at the impact of the internet on place-based relationships. And we now um, kind of from, from now 2019 looking backwards, there everything in between um, the, um, the social media platforms that have evolved um, the way that um, home-based work and um, um, the, the technologies introduced into the workplace under the rubric of, of computer-supported collaborative work, and, and obviously then the, the smart city domain, they've all kind of come to fruition around understanding that place is not dying. There's not any sort of thing as the, the death of distance, but we're actually seeing a um, ever-increasing relevance and significance of place. And so it was a Kind of being at the um, the right time, the right um, place for founding the um, Urban Informatics Research Lab as a, as a group that is continuing to study that interrelationship between people, place, and technology. Just a quick, um, just hitting pause for a moment, Marcus, and and just for sort of curiosity and amusement more than anything. Um, but, but I do ask this question, of course, with a with a you know a, a strong lens of seriousness. You know, it's 2019 now, so we are 
uh, more well beyond a decade from when you were sort of um, really sort of building this uh, this interest, this uh, body of research around the connection between people, place, technology, and data. You know, when you when you sit there today, and you know people get up on stage and you read blogs about you know the the newcomers to this agenda sort of harking on about oh you know smart cities need to be sort of human centered and and people focused um i mean i i can only imagine sort of what goes through your mind because it's like well yeah i mean you know we were doing that sort of a decade ago can can you give me a sense of you know what's what's your observation now with the level of dialogue and 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 sort of you know, media chatter about these agendas and sort of it seems to be a new revelation that it needs to be human-centred. And I was only talking to someone the other day myself and I thought, oh, my God, there's another blog that's come out that said, you know, smart cities need to be human-centred. And I thought, I mean, it's only ever been about that, right? Um, so I, I sort of w- would love to get your views on that little that little sort of idea or comment or question. Yeah, Sure. Um, it's it's definitely a bit of a of a constant catch up, and we even have an article that that came out recently where we call it the the perpetual beta. So, in a in a sense, we are working, and we are obviously have a um, obligation in in research to be at the cutting edge of of thought leadership, of of scholarship, of um, research and development. And so, a lot of the things that we are doing isn't at the immediate application level, but a lot of it is also in the kind of blue sky kind of territory. And I think when we started, especially the notion that we would put um, research emphasis um, in this area that at that time was very, very tiny. The actually idea to look into how technology would have any kind of impact on plays um, around 2002, when I when I started my PhD, was quite rare. So the, the people and colleagues that I was working with at that time, um, I would all know them by name and um, we would meet each other at conferences and it was quite a tightly knit group. Whereas, you know, fast forward to today, um, interest in that area has just mushroomed and, and exploded. And so there is a bit of a catching up that we kind of said very early on in response to this very, um, these, these very early examples, I suppose, of um, this in, in South Korea, they were called U-cities, the ubiquitous cities. Mm, so I think mm. those were some of the very early examples of, of national policies coming together with um, quite serious investment from the um, IT sector and um, um, actual tangible examples like New Songdo near Incheon Airport in, uh, near Seoul in, in South Korea were studied as, as the kinds of first smart cities at that time called U-cities. But also I think it was the moment when a lot of more critical research appeared that was saying, well, this is a whole bunch of what the Koreans call the, the Shibol, family conglomerate IT um, companies of a you know, very large size, um, creating showcases of what the technology can do. And everything was uh, portrayed in, in a very impressive manner. If you looked at the, uh, the narrative, the marketing, the, the videos that emerged that were um, capturing that kind of moment and that vision. But at the same time, we were missing, in a way, decades and and maybe centuries of other research in in urban studies around uh, design and architecture and sociology and geography and so forth that really studied and documented the nuances of urban life and all of a sudden in a way it felt like it was um, translated into a narrative about optimizing and and productivity 
and efficiency gains. And so I think a lot of the um, um, response or rebuttal that we tried to put into um, the smart cities research and development area was to um, say the city is more than just that. There's there's more to cities, and that's not a new thing. We should, I think, a lot of it was actually trying to remind people that there were cities before the smart cities debate um, mm. came about, and especially mm. it grew after the global financial crisis. So I'm just looking at this graph of other research centers um, that are looking at urban informatics, urban science, real time data, and so forth, and they really proliferated after the the GFC. So there was far more of those around 2010, 11, and 12, and now they're pretty much everywhere. Every university has one of those, um, but a lot of them are very um, are very narrowly defined around data and data analytics and and what some of my colleagues call urban science. Whereas we've always maintained a much broader remit around people, place, and technology to also get insights and, and borrow theories and methods from the humanities, from arts, from social sciences. So those um, disciplines that I think are still a little bit underrepresented in the smart cities debate. And so in, in terms of your question about the human centeredness, that's really been our focus for the last um, 10 to 13 years. But more recently, we're actually critical of that as well, because when you, when you look at a lot of the human centered design approaches, and, and how they get translated into reality in both industry and government. Sometimes it's the very short-term thinking around what do humans want? They want comfort and convenience. And that comfort and convenience may not necessarily be um, in line with what humanity needs. So there is, a, mm -hmm. there is a bit of a contrast between the individual punter and what they would want and what we as a, you know, as a, as a society, as a community, require for planetary survival and planetary health. And so those are the kinds of questions we are asking right now, which is, is this human centeredness getting kind of a little bit um, derailed by some of the more commercial, um, I suppose, goals and, and objectives? And do we need to rethink that? Let me sort of come back to that. I've got a, a filler question for the moment. Um, and it's around time and sort of, technological sort of advancement um this uh, i mean I, I couldn't think of a more exciting space you know people technology place so uh, you know over the decade the past decade um give me a sense of or or, or share your views around just how rapid or not um the, the the pace of technology change how fast it's been and and how has that actually impacted on your research i mean i mean are you physically keeping up you know research particularly longitudinal research which is probably i'd say some of the most important research that we need that we're seeing less of in this space but how is research physically technically keeping up with this change in the technology world? Yeah, yeah, okay, that's a good question. Um, I think there is, from what I see and what I've experienced over the last decade or so, three different kinds of laneways, if you like, on that highway. Um, it's like the, the slow one, the, the one in the middle, and the, the fast lane. Obviously, technology is in the fast lane because of um, um, consumer expectations around new versions, new updates, new products being released, and um, 
you know, 2007, um, 2006, 2007, we would have our first, you know, um, PhD students working on iPhone applications. And um, these days, it's like, oh, we don't actually bother that much anymore with just mm. um, research that is app-based. It's, it's kind of getting much more into um, technologies of, of scale around IoT, around um, data collection at scale. And so the, the technology lane is a very fast one. The middle one, I suppose, is the change in the urban environment itself. So if I again think of the people place technology, I think the, the, the lane and that um, the research in the middle lane would be the ones around um, urban design, architecture, what the built environment actually does. And that's uh, a much slower pace. But at the same time, it still moves um, with a certain speed as well, because there's an expectation there's um, new developments that are responding to housing affordability, that are responding to um, environmental impetus, that are responding to latest kinds of um, craze around placemaking, for instance, and you know situated engagements, um, but also in individual cities, what they are doing, for instance. I mean, research projects that are then evaluating some of the um, um, interventions in the built environments, they would go on for, for a number of years. So slower pace than the technology pace, but we would still have a number of those developments within um, that decade that we've been researching the space. And the very early postdoc that I've done was on the uh, here in Brisbane on the Kelvin Grove Urban Village, which started already much earlier in the um, um, late 90s. I think the first vision documents were drafted and the master plan emerged from Hasselt in the early 2000s and then the building started to be um, developed and constructed and, and our research was interested in what would the residents do with um, this um, one of the first examples I, th I think in Australia of fiber to the bedroom of having mm. a um, mixed use fiber network that would carry data, television and telephony and internet all on the one fiber network. So we in a way had already this, this classy NBN rollout um, back in, in 2003 and it was quite exciting to then connect the the technology, the, um, the built environment implications with the social implications. But that project um, lasted three years from a research point of view, and we wrote up our reports and, and publications and our recommendations to government. And then we looked at, at other projects in um, the Gasworks site in Brisbane, um, places at the Gold Coast, at the Sunshine Coast, places overseas. The, the slowest line really of those three is the social line. Because I think mm. some of the research questions that we are asking in that social domain are still valid today. So questions around why, why are we doing this? Um, what is the, um, the overall goal? What are the kinds of challenges? What about um, data ethics? Uh, what about privacy? What about user experience? What about the environment? What about sustainability? All of those questions, they, they connect to the um, tech space and they connect to the built environment space. But... Um, they are really quite fundamental questions about where is humanity heading? And I think they are becoming more and more crucial. And what's nice to see in a lot of the um, industry and government fora and committees and boards that I, um, that I see and I participate in, it's actually that narrative that is coming much more to the fore. And um, yeah, very much looking forward um, this week to Smart Cities Week because we started some of these conversations last year. And I think those are... Um, really exciting for us. But what is even more exciting for us is that there's more and more interest from government and, and industry to participate in those conversations that we've been having for a long time.
the um the data one's an interesting one i mean um it's it's certainly um now front and center um comparing now to when you know a decade ago when when you were sort of really mobilizing on this um what uh i, I would have been fascinated to understand back in 2006 you know what what was the, <laughs> what was the data privacy conversation like back then you know what was the the, the the transparency and you know I, I don't know if artificial intelligence was around then you know w w what is the what has been in your mind the biggest shift in um, importance um, you know elevation of key issues in the sort of data privacy transparency space you know back from when you were playing with kiosks to sort of now where with IOT and cameras, we can sense anything in real time with data going straight to a phone and the level of course of analytics and interrogation in the back end just keeps, you know, getting more sort of refined and refined. What's sort of the, the, the biggest shift in narrative that you've seen? Um, I think the, the narrative has been shifting, not just, um, in industry and government, which which is uh, great to see, but actually also in our research. So it's not that we already had all um, the right answers. In fact, it, it was actually a matter of asking the right questions as well and coming up with new questions as we were studying new phenomena and new developments in the tech space, in the smart city space. So I think our very early um, ideas and conceptualizations around data and privacy back in, in 2006 were probably quite pedestrian, quite um, rudimentary, quite drafty. And um, it, it might have been around, well, if it's, if it's with regards to, for instance, uh, privacy concerns or surveillance concerns, um, it was about um, governance and, and uh, different preferences that could be set in different applications. So it was a very, I suppose, instrumental view in the early days that was about what's the issue we can design some sort of interface response to that, but it wasn't taking um, the, the bigger picture view of what this actually means for um, a lot of people. And so that in itself, I think, um, caused us to question the whole focus on usability in the interaction design domain, which is where our research lab is, is mostly um, vested in, in human computer interaction, interaction design and, and related disciplines. Because as you focus on the human factor, as you focus on usability and the interface, you usually also um, deal with um, a level of granularity that isn't, that is necessary, but it's also, um, I think, taking a lot of attention away from what smart cities are, which is an aggregate for a number of people, quite a lot of people in, in very large cities. And so we were lacking the kinds of methods mm. um, from a um, interaction design and from a um, kind of critical design point of view to also assess and evaluate what this would mean at scale. So what was really useful for us is to then um, use our um, transdisciplinary networks with the um, colleagues in media communication studies in um, the Digital Media Research Center, for instance, because they were uh, much better at that uh, end of looking um, at the city and at communication networks at scale rather than the interface. For them, the interface itself was the novel thing. And uh, for us, it was actually looking at more the, um, the, the mass population impacts that were of interest. And so we kind of came together around this. If I just reflect back on some of these 
early publications, a lot of the debate, um, I think still today in the um, smart city space is about interoperability. And I'm looking at this work we've done with, with Micta at the time, now called Data61 um, in, in 2010, 2011. And we had um, this first project that we called Street Computing, where we, um, uh, this publication is called Street Computing Towards an Integrated Open Data API for Cities. So this is about 10 years ago that we were advocating for interoperability and the kinds of data exchanges and the ways that we need to um, um, have far better um, focus and emphasis on, on data governance and data ethics. Now, again, fast forward to today, I think that discussion has become more sophisticated for regards to our research interactions with colleagues from communication studies, but also increasingly from law and, and political science and, and policy, but also because we've had a much richer array of cases to study. So the Alphabet companies, Sidewalk Labs, um, Toronto Waterfront Development, for instance, is you know a fantastic example to study for you know all the right and wrong reasons, if you like, but mm. also then complementing and contrasting that and, and um, putting that in juxtaposition with Barcelona and their approach towards technological sovereignty. Um, just finished an article that is comparing Toronto with Barcelona and is um, doing that with, through the lens of um, privacy surveillance, um, what we call anxieties of control for, for citizens, but also the um, notion of technological sovereignty. And so it's a bit of a moving target, but it's, um, yeah, it's quite an exciting space to be in, especially because um, QUT allows for and nurtures these, these um, transdisciplinary kinds of connections. So from the research world, so in the research world, looking out, Marcus, um, what's your observation on, you, you know, so my question is, uh, you know, are we learning? You know, are, are we getting it? Are we, are we actually building better cities? Uh, as a result of not only the, the solutions and, and the, the data capabilities, but also, you know, the, the, the research. I've always been an advocate that, you know, research is, is, is not really helpful unless we sort of unlock what it says and, and sort of, you know, shape policy and practice around that. I mean, uh, are, we, are we getting it? Are we, are we, are we advancing? Uh, I, I would say we are advancing. Uh, for, for my take, I would love for us to advance at a, at a faster pace, especially because there's a bit of an urgency with the kinds of challenges that we are facing in, in cities, but also I mentioned the whole notion of planetary health and climate change, uh, sustainability, um, that, that we, we cannot actually wait and we cannot uh, let business as usual um, proceed. So there's definitely a lot of room for improvement for the work that we are doing in research to um, be far, for there to be a far tighter coupling with, with government policy and with um, industry. Um, and that's an area that I think isn't limited to the smart city space. I think there is, uh, especially in Australia, um, a lot of um, need for reform. And at the moment, the, the problem really is that we are going backwards. I think a lot of the universities that are um, increasingly lacking um, government support or they're facing um, cuts for research funding, they are constantly um, needing to make up for that by, by chasing um, other sorts of income through uh, applied industry research. And whilst applied industry, I do a lot of applied industry research as well, which is very exciting, it sometimes doesn't give you the same level of um, 
space and, and the same level of um, oxygen, I suppose, for the scholarship that is required to advance this from a more holistic point of view, because it's more about the immediate need. How do we improve the consumer data right interfaces for the open banking legislation that the federal government is trying to introduce and what are we going to do about it? So it's, it's very much, you know, we need this by tomorrow and, and this is what it looks like right now and what is it supposed to look like next week. Whereas the questions we need to ask about this overall, they sometimes get lost and um, there isn't as many, um, I suppose, uh, bridges and interfaces between that type of research and uh, policymakers and um, people in industry. And I think other countries seem to be doing a better job than us. What, what will it take then, Marcus, for, you know, this, uh, you know, action? Uh, well, maybe it's not action, but I mean, you know, you mentioned some of those key issues slash crises, you know, climate, for example. Is, is there a particular burning platform uh, is, is there a particular thing or incident um, or, or event that has to happen for greater action? Well, um, the... Um, I know that's a big, lofty, unfair question, but I, I mean, I, I'm on the same page with you, you know, and, and I, I ask myself all the time, I mean, what 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 will it take you know australia rapidly urbanizing you know climate crisis housing affordability crisis i mean i don't want to sound dramatic but um you know these these are real tangible extremely wicked challenges that our cities and communities are uh, this isn't a future thing this is sort of right now right it is right now. I think, though, that um, a lot of the um, things that we should consider doing, they are within the realm of the possible, and they are all quite quite feasible. If you look at um, my colleagues in science that are studying um, climate change and the climate emergency, if you look at colleagues uh, looking into biodiversity, if you go from the environmental spectrum, sustainability spectrum, all the way to the social spectrum, look at um, housing and housing affordability, mobility, transport, um, and um, all the kinds of issues uh, much closer to um, urban life. Um, the, the real problem is that there is an increasing disconnect between the research being carried out and what politicians are enacting. So just yesterday, I look at the RSEQ's Twitter feed and how they are still pushing for laneway upgrades and laneway extensions when transport planners, transport engineers, people in urban planning, pretty much anyone in research would tell them that since the 70s, there is um, uh, evidence on the table to suggest that if you build more roads, you just induce more traffic. It's induced demand, as, mm. it's, as it's referred to. But it's popular. And so this, the populist kind of response in Australia to these um, challenges means that there is um, people that are saying something, putting it out there through social media, through public sphere, through news channels, through newspapers and through the media. And um, those that uh, are not necessarily part of the, um, the research and the scholarship, they think, oh, that's a great idea. Yes, I want that. You know, and this is where it goes back to human centeredness and how we are increasingly trying to unpack what it actually means to be human-centered. So if the, the human wants more laneways and the you know 12 lanes are not enough, we need 14, we need 16, eventually it's going to look like uh, Los Angeles, then you can argue that's human-centeredness because we're listening to the human. 
But if mm. the human has been in, informed by a public sphere and by a news media landscape that is in corporate hands and that is actually disconnected from scientific evidence, then Australia is facing a problem. And so this is really where I think the, the smart cities debate, especially because cities are not just about, uh, as I said earlier, about you know, efficiencies and productivity. They're also a cornerstone of, um, of the, the, the public sphere, of how people interact and, and communicate. And this became, and it still is, um, you know, very much front and center in Hong Kong because of the, the ways that protest is unfolding there. And also in you know, parts of Australia where mm. people are going to the streets in order to make their voices heard, to see um, that um, these different um, um, street furniture, uh, road systems, um, etc. They become all of a sudden um, a different vehicle for the public sphere to proliferate voices that are at the moment not being heard through the usual news media. And so there's a there's a very tight um, link right now between the research being done in uh, media communication studies and in journalism in the way that uh, people are uh, looking at. Um, the way community and society is given voice through um, social media, online media, and uh, the, the conventional news media, but also how people are looking at cities um, and the, the smart features of cities as a way to, um, to foster and to amplify that public sphere. At the moment, I think it's, uh, it can go you know, either way, but um, I think that's something that is quite crucial as, the, as we are going forward, because there's a lot of evidence on the table. We actually know what to do about mm. all of these issues. Mm. It's just that they're not being enacted because they're not very uh, popular decisions. Okay, so two, two questions to go. My, my second last question, I'm just going to ask you point blank. Um, can technology and data help us heal the planet? Um, that's a, it's a very easy question, but a very complicated answer, I suppose. I think that, um, I mean, I'm, I come from a technology background. I've studied computer science and design and HCI. So I do believe that a lot is to be gained from data and technology, but it's usually not on its own. Technology and data is embedded in a, in a social culture and social material kind of environment. And it's actually much more about the attention we um, put onto that environment, that context that makes a difference. So for instance, if, you know, if Beijing is installing more air pollution monitors in order to detect um, air pollution, I'm kind of scratching my head thinking, maybe you've documented enough, um, or maybe the granularity of insight is at a level that is sufficient now for you to act. Um, and we have similar examples here in, in Australia where maybe the, the notion of more data, more accuracy, and more documentation isn't really what's needed right now because uh, otherwise it will, will, will be too late. And so data and technology is great, but at the same time, at some stage, we need to move from analysis to action. Okay. Wow, I could go on a separate, uh, separate conversation around that one, but I won't. Um, final question, <laughs> Marcus. Um, more of a personal one, reflecting or, or looking sort of, uh, you know, the, at the coming 12, 24 months. For you personally, um, what, what are you excited about? Is there a, a, a project or a, a narrative or an initiative or something else that uh, you're looking forward to over the next year or two? Uh, definitely. So um, we're, we're putting together some new proposals um, and some already in the, um, the peer review pipeline. Um, I think overall there is um, two directions I'm, I'm pursuing. One is um, around um, civic data and, and data ethics, data transparency. So it's going 
um, back to that example I mentioned of juxtaposing Toronto with Barcelona and trying to see what are the kinds of implications for data governance, for um, transparency, accountability. Um, it goes all the way from explainable AI and machine learning um, all the way to um, being able to come up with more um, proactive and, and constructive responses um, to the um, social license of operating smart cities. And that's something we are looking forward to uh, discussing with, with delegates at the Smart Cities Week um, this week. Um, and that's hopefully going to be um, a bit of a focus as we move forward next year and, um, and beyond. The second big area is around sustainability. I think a lot of the sustainability discussion is stuck um, in trying to just gain efficiency gains, but um, a lot of um, the kinds of um, uh, well, I suppose uh, insights from um, behavioral economics actually tell us that efficiency gains are usually recouped by what's called a rebound effect. So as people are saving, for instance, on, um, on electricity, on fuel, on whatever it is, it gets reinvested in the system. So the overall result is the net increase rather than the reduction that we are mm. And so in response to that, we are, we are moving more towards a um, approach that is what we call a more than human approach, which is rather than looking at um, human centeredness that uh, equates that with, with human comfort and convenience, we also have to have in there um, the implications for planetary health for um, avoiding the eco side that we are currently facing and what we have to do on the city level. And so that's quite exciting research that is looking at um, different performance um, measurement frameworks for the built environment. Um, I know your, your previous engagement with the, um, the Green Building Council, so we are quite interested in uh, what the future would be of the Green Star rating system, for instance. We are um, putting forward some proposals for um, what that might look like in the future. And it goes all the way to other kinds of more, more tangible um, uh, cases and examples, like The Economist has been producing a livability index of cities, and yes. Melbourne was just dethroned and is now on number <laughs> number two after after Vienna and so forth. And, and those indices also have been receiving a lot of criticism. So we are asking what would a more than human livability index looks like mm. that isn't just about, you know, the livability of a, a certain sample group, but it's actually about um, the way cities negotiate their relationship with the ecological surrounds that we depend on for our survival and prosperity. Well, I'm going to be watching. Uh, I'm going to be watching that, and probably more of what you're doing with data care and other great initiatives over the coming couple of years, with a lot of uh, a lot of attention. Um, that that sort of interconnected sort of space of uh, uh, people, technology, uh, and and physical place and space is 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 a passion of mine as well. So um, I uh, I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed that conversation, Marcus. Um, I did too. Thank you so much for having me. No, that, that's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, and and for our for our listeners, that's been Professor Marcus Foth, um, Professor of Urban Informatics at Q, the QUT Design Lab here in, in Brisbane, my hometown. Um, for our listeners that aren't subscribing to The Chronicles, you can do so on your favourite uh, podcast platform. You can also head to our website, uh, smartcitieschronicles.com. Shoot us an email anytime, chronicles at anz smartcitiescouncil.com. My name is Adam Beck, your host of The Chronicles. Uh, glad and delighted to bring you uh, the third uh, in a series we're doing on where it all began, uh, looking back into the Smart Cities movement. We look forward to bringing you another episode very soon.